This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm not modest. I'm just completely awesome, and you're just going to hear me boast. Um, and by the way, I am the Steve Portugal. I don't know what other kind of Steves there's been going on, but ask for the authentic one, and you'll, you'll never be sorry. So I'm going to talk today about uh, just a number of different kinds of approaches that I've seen and how organizations are going about their business of creating products, services, innovations. It's not meant to be an exhaustive, completely documented uh, you know, exploration of every mindset or every approach that's possible, but I think I want to pick up a few key ones and, and share them with you. Um, you know, and I think about it this way. There's many paths to success, but there are many more paths to failure. So what can we kind of learn from looking at both of those? So you're going to hear my preferences for sure. I have, uh, you know, I do certain kind of work. I believe in certain kinds of things. Um, so you'll hear my biases, but if, if you don't agree with how I approach things or how I recommend, that's fine, because I think the outcome I hope for everybody is to just be a bit more reflective about the way you go about the work that you do um, and consider the risks. We make choices, we have options, so you know, weigh the risks and, and the, the upsides and downsides of those options. All right, so one approach uh, to making a thing, putting something out in the world is, is, I'll call it extend. This is the idea that something that's new, it comes from a framework that's established by some existing product that we already have. We already have that out in the world. Sometimes that's, you know, what's the hot breakthrough product of the moment? Um, and it's a valid approach for sure, but I think you also see it spin out of control sometimes. So Shazam appeared in the iTunes store in 2008, and then it, it becomes this touch point for innovation. I guess I want to say, you know, innovation in, in, in air quotes. Some kind of innovation is to, to do a, a Shazam something. And I'm sure you've all been in brainstorms where someone says, yeah, we should do a Shazam for whatever kind of thing that you're going on. So you get things like uh, Shazam for fonts. Um, this is kind of a strange one, kind of marrying new and old technology, uh, Shazam for album covers. So this idea of sort of a Shazam, a literal Shazam or things that are Shazam-like, you know, then it shows up in pop culture. People watch Silicon Valley. This was the uh, hot dog, uh, not hot dog app, which I think they actually put in the, uh, put in the iTunes store in that way that life imitates art and art imitates life. And so, you know, the parody as kind of a, a, an idea generation for innovation just keeps kind of rolling. Um, and, you know, the Shazam for something is also the Uber for something. And I think there's an account uh, on Twitter that's like called like Uber but for. Uh, and just retweet things that say that. Um, and it's just a ridiculous form of, of, of you know, disruption light or like faux disruption. Uh, so this is a parody site. You just keep clicking it and it just generates new, new types of, you know, Ubers that you could come up with. Um, you know, and I think what it points to, what the, the implication of the parody is, just how shallow that thinking is, that you just can match words and then somehow uh, innovation comes through and that, that will make money, that something good, valid, and profitable will come out just by swapping words in it. Kind of, uh, it's an embarrassing perspective on what it is that we do, I think, and so kind of have to check ourselves. 
Um, so, you know, if you are extending an idea, I think the principle here is if you take an idea that exists and are extending it, you know, just check a little bit carefully is, is that a good thing that you're coming up with or is it just easy for our mouths to make those words and therefore we can come up with it? I mean, another, we were just, we've reached this kind of peak of self-parody. I mean, certainly in Silicon Valley where I am, but, you know, as in our industry overall, um, you know, these radical reinventions that are, in fact, the same thing that we've had for a long time. So here's a photo booth, right? We know what a photo booth is, uh, but it's given this new aesthetic, um, a lot of, like, heavy branding makeover and makeover and makeover, and this ridiculously aspirational story. Step inside a new kind of photography studio where you're the photographer. Wow, this is sitting in an airport uh, somewhere in the U.S. Um, and, and I feel like, oh, this is the disruption aesthetic. This sort of looks and feels and has the, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, the smoked glass and everything. Like, this is, this is what disruption feels like. But what's it offering that's, that's, that's new? Um, I mean, very little, I think, is my answer to that. Oh, and so just like the, uh, just, you know, when I said life imitates uh, art, art imitates life, uh, this is from Black Mirror, right? Black Mirror becomes this cultural reference point for us and our communications and, and our discussing about what we do. Black Mirror is not a blueprint. It's not a source of ideas. It's a cautionary tale. <laughs> and, and I just want to, like, comment on the fact that you guys laughed at me saying that. I actually, that was not a laugh line. That's not that, that anyway, so I, I think your, your reaction kind of acknowledges that we're kind of catching ourselves here, right? We, we looked at this for something. It's just, it's sort of exciting and inspiring when you get kind of seduced by it. Um, but, you know, then you get things like this. So here's, uh, this is a real product in uh, New York City. I'm sure it's in elsewhere in the world. Uh, these things show up in different stores. Uh, anybody that wants can get uh, free tap water but you have to have the app to get um, chilled, unfiltered water. And I have to say, this makes me splutter with rage. Like, it seems so benign, right? Every, hey, everyone gets water, like, no problem, it works, and then you can just opt into this premium thing just by, just by using the app. But this is a product that takes water, which is the source of life, you know, water, air, and creates two classes of users. Um, and it tells one class of the person, and maybe, that person doesn't have a mobile device or doesn't have you know, enough minutes left on their plan or they're uh, traveling from a different country or they have a disability. Um, whatever that would be that would maybe make sort of opting in not, not be as likely, well, they can't get filtered cold water. You get crappier water, just plain tap water. And maybe the quality of that, you know, the baseline doesn't mean they're drinking rust with nails in it, but still there's something better that they can't get around water. Right, this is just, to me this is just, uh, it's horrible. This says terrible things about us as a society, how we see ourselves. Um, and I actually left this restaurant and went to uh, a design thesis presentation program. And you know, I, I, I don't wanna sort of use, I don't wanna be too unkind to students, but I think it's, that's a place where for sure you see this seduction of black mirror. And one, I remember one of the students was talking about uh, you know, the impact of autonomous vehicles is gonna change the employment landscape for truckers, right? What's gonna happen to these people? Uh, and the, the plan would be uh, highways, autonomous, in town is the driver, so what do they do for all those hours? So he designed this whole, you know, in the, the place where they sleep, kind of behind the, the seats, 
there would be, um, you know, they could be YouTube stars and they could be creating video and, and, and it was just like that sort of dystopia on dystopia, right? <laughs> people are gonna lose jobs and then we're gonna take these people and like they'll sit with, sit with computers even though they're not, maybe not knowledge workers and they'll be, you know, media entities and, and make money. And you can see how good hearted he was trying to be in kind of creating a future that supports you know, job, uh, you know, remediates against job loss, and yet that is just some dark, dark stuff. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's, that's one, that's kind of extending. Um, the second one I'll talk about here is invent, and when I say invent, I'm talking about focusing on uh, the product, the solution, the technology, like the thing that we make as kind of a lens. Uh, so here's James Dyson, he created the Dyson vacuum and ways to dry your hands in every weird room you walk into, any place you go in the world. Um, and you know, the whole narrative about Dyson was like this relentless focus on the solution. Uh, I had to look this up, 5,127 prototypes over five years. That's the origin story of Dyson, like how much he worked on getting the thing right. Um, you know, if you focus on the solution, and you're a genius, like uh, you know, we can say Dyson is, and you get the right thing, it can work. This is a successful business. Here's Segway. Segway is, I could just skip this slide, you guys already. This is Dean Kamen, right? And, and I don't know if people remember when the Segway came out, there was this enormous buzz. This thing was coming that was gonna remake cities, it was gonna really just change the world, um, and then it, it didn't, right? It's this scenario, and then it's, it's people at shopping malls, um, and it didn't, it didn't change anything. And so they focused on the solution, they made this brilliant piece of hardware that solved things that hadn't really been solved before, but they didn't think about, like, how does it make people look? <laughs> or anything of the system of, like, how we go from place to place in our daily lives, they didn't seem to consider that. They thought, we'll just make this awesome thing, and the world will rewrite itself around our great thing. And so Segway's not a success. Um, yeah, so when we consider sort of genius myths, you've got to consider Steve Jobs um, and, and how we have mythologized him. We remember when Steve got it right and not when he got it wrong, um, and even that narrative, like Steve got it right is the story we create, as opposed to thinking that products that Apple produced, you know, in that era were, you know, came out of one person versus a team. Um, and that's the story, right? Steve Jobs obsessed over every detail, and he would abuse people and push people and do whatever it took to kind of get the right thing. Uh, and, and this is held up as an example for us to emulate, uh, right? We want to be the Apple of, or the, the iPod of, or the iPhone of. So, but here you have to have, you have to be a genius, and you have to have the kind of personality that Steve had, and you have to find people who are willing to work in that environment and take that kind of crap from you. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's what it takes to emulate that model. Uh, and just thinking about the lone inventor, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the Iron Man movies show that, that Tony Stark and this romantic myth that we know not to be true, but it's a story in our culture and, and I think sometimes we're either indirectly or directly choosing to aspire towards that or judge ourselves towards that. Um, and, 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 you know, there they are sweating as they make the solution. This is not about reframing problems or unpacking needs. It's just, you know, there with laser beams and computers to kind of help you out as you work into the night and, and make something. Oh, so when you think, I think about inventions, here's a thing that I saw. Um, this is the most solution of a thing I've just ever seen. 
right? It's like a way that you would open the door without touching the door. So there's an acknowledgement of the problem there, but really what they're doing is just inviting you to sort of celebrate their, their solution. And, you know, here's all these brutal materials, exposed screw heads, stainless steel, um, you know, and the only way, by the way, that you can use this thing is have the equal amount of real estate given over to a visual graphic that uh, tells you how you would use this thing to open the door. Because what would invite you more to like put your wrist in <laughs> to like this piece of metal with screw heads on it? Um, yeah, and so basically you make your concessions to it. You want to open the door? Then like lean over and put your wrist against it because we're the solution and you're just, we don't care, open the damn door. Um, and, and this is an extreme example, but this is, this totally embodies invent. We're going to make a thing, right? This is, I mean, this is like Segway. You will adapt to us. So that's, I think, the, again, the limits or the risks if you take an invent approach. All right, so the, you know, the title of the talk is about problem. Let me talk about problem and, and, the, and sort of this fixing mentality, right? We don't, we definitely don't want this in our, uh, in our dating life or our romantic life. We don't want fixers coming into our lives. I think we have to consider the risks if we take this approach to the making of things that we put out into the world. Uh, so I want to talk about three kinds of problems. The uh, simple problem, the complex problem, and the wicked problem. It sounds like it's going to be a story. It's not a story. Um, it's just three kinds of problems. So the simple problem is where we know what the problem is and we know what the solution will be. So an example would be a leaky faucet. Uh, you know, in most cases, we know that the faucet is leaking, and we know how to fix it. We take it apart, we replace the worn-out washer, we put it back together. Bob's your uncle, right? Ideally. The complex problem is where we know the problem, but we don't know what the solution is going to be. So uh, I think you could talk about like a healthcare situation, a specific situation like that, where a child has a fever, so you try hydrating, you try aspirin, you try antibiotics. There's a number of things that you would try. The solution set is at least up for grabs. You, just, uh, you don't know which one is going to be the one that's going to make the change, lead to the result that you want. So homelessness, I think, is a good example of the wicked problem. So the wicked problem is the problem isn't known and the solution is not known. And, and in fact, in wicked problems, not only is the solution not known, but sometimes it's unknowable. Um, and so when we treat wicked problems as complex problems, we're likely to fail. Uh, you know, oh, we've got to create housing for people who are, who are, um, who are currently homeless, or it's, it's drug abuse is at root of it, so we have to you know, get rid of, of, of drug problems. Uh, that's going to kind of solve it. Um, but you know, those things haven't worked. There's lots of effort been, and I'm just picking one example of a wicked problem, but if you look at this, we have done all kinds of things, uh, and it, you know, it hasn't worked, uh, or it hasn't worked the way we would like to see it work, you know, and the, the full kind of change we're looking for. Um, so because I think, and, and I don't want to oversimplify this here, there's a lot going on, but not, not being able to point to a specific cause or understanding the cause makes it hard to apply a specific solution to it. Uh, and it's interesting that design thinking and sort of the, the language and aesthetics around it gets held up as this sort of the, now we can attack homelessness, now we can solve these kinds of things because we have design thinking. And you know, there's a lot of good-hearted effort by organizations that we admire or that we're part of to uh, try and tackle these things, and I'm not dismissing that. Uh, just because something is uh, in a wicked problem doesn't mean we give up on solving it. Um, I don't think we should do, I think doing something is better than doing nothing. 
but again, we, uh, you know, my whole point here is let's be realistic about our success and let's think about the risks of the approach we take and that you know, uh, a more honest assessment of the nature of the problem we are dealing with can help us uh, at least point us to the right, in the right direction and, and be more realistic with ourselves about what the consequences of, of our interventions are going to be. Just going all the way back, <coughs> right, I think something else is going on here. There's the sexiness of design thinking or, you know, pick your buzzword that we embrace of, of, of the month. Um, you know, applying those to all sorts of social problems to me feels like, oh, we're kind of losing track of the fact that we still have a lot of work to do in just the basics. And I don't know if you saw this image go around social media in the last year or so. I mean, there, you know, hashtag, uh, what, what, WTF UX, uh, uh, sucky UX. These examples get posted all the time. There's a lot of just terrible, like just really embarrassingly terrible uh, software user experiences going around. But like, that's the thing that we all said we were going to do, and now we're dealing with homelessness. Um, you know, there's just, there are simple problems that need to be solved. There are still plumbers, and lots of plumbing work is solving simple problems. And, uh, you know, I know it's more compelling to say we're working on homelessness, but uh, sometimes there's a bit of hubris in that, and that, you know, designers are a bit vulnerable to, to that, that, well, we're working on homelessness, but collectively we're still doing this. Like, maybe that's okay for us to be working on. So I think one limitation of focusing on problems as kind of a lens is that you aim at the problem afterwards instead of before. Um, you know, you look at signage, you just see this all, all the time. It's shifting the problem onto somebody else, though. You don't do the, the, the full design effort, and then it has to be remediated. Um, so here is, uh, here's my uh, healthcare clinic. This is where you return the uh, take-home sleep study kits. It's in this box, which is basically a garbage bin. Um, that says in one place, sleep study drop box, but then says in a million other places, it's not garbage, don't put garbage here. Hey, this is a sleep study drop box. They just keep adding another sign, uh, <laughs> as opposed to acknowledging like, hey, it's a bin with a black opening on the front that's at waist height in a room, um, as if you could just keep putting up another sign. I went to another hospital and they have the same bin design, but they actually did a better job at trying to design for the behavior they wanted and trying to prevent the behavior that they didn't want. Um, although I didn't get the, it was called the Care, the Care Connect badge. I got a, just a regular printed sticky badge. And I don't know what a Care Connect badge looks like because I only had the sticky badge. So I wasn't sure if I was supposed to put that in there, but it turns out that actually is a piece of rubbish and I was about to put it in there. And, so once you start thinking about accidental garbage, you see it everywhere. Here's an umbrella holder. Don't put any trash in here, please. Again, does that not invite you to throw your trash in in just the best way possible? Uh, and I saw this one a couple of weeks ago. Like, think about why this one works better. They put some starter umbrellas in there, and they marked it very differently. Um, and, and again, you sort of, you know, at least here they designed the thing for the behavior they want as opposed to, you know, this doesn't say umbrellas only. You don't need a sign. I think that's kind of a key that you are not shifting the problem of your design failure onto the person by admonishing them about what they should be doing. And again, that's, that's fixing the problem too late. Uh, this one is from, uh, from Boston, Massachusetts, where bad drivers are kind of legendary. That's part of the culture. Um, and I mean, talk about not even thinking about the problem. Like, now it's up to you to make sure that a truck doesn't hit you. In fact, it's, it, it's not even a risk. It's like, yeah, 
you know, trucks, they drive on the sidewalk here. <laughs> so we put up a sign to tell you about that. Are there any other ways that we could have prevented that problem besides a sign? Here's uh, the Sydney CBD. Um, at least they're kind of a, maybe, they're pointing to your preventative behavior. Here in Boston, we're just saying, trucks do bad shit, don't die. <laughs> and here we're saying, look out for trucks, like a small change. Again, trucks shouldn't be driving on the sidewalk. Um, but we're not really doing that. It's kind of up to you. Like, you have to, to we, we're not solving it, but we're making kind of like a, an ineffectively we can gesture towards the solving of it. So again, this, this, this problem-solving mindset uh, doesn't even get fully fleshed out. All right, here's, I think, is kind of a good example. Uh, this is Warby Parker in the US. I just learned today uh, a brand, Sneaking Duck. Afterwards, I want someone to explain to me why an eyeglasses brand is called Sneaking Duck. Um, we didn't get to the heart of that, but I'm very curious. So this is about, this is kind of a problem-solving business that I think is very successful. So you get a bunch of eyeglasses sent to you. You pick the ones you want. Uh, you pick the one that you want or whatever you want and then you kind of send the rest back. It's no risk, it's shop at home, it's kind of fast fashion like is kind of happening in the world, um, like H&M and so on. Um, yeah, so they designed the entire experience and then they kind of did a service design lens you know, on this in, in, for Warby Parker um, and they tried to make all aspects of the experience excellent. And so that is like fixing things that aren't good about the current uh, uh, best practices and making a better version. So this works. You know, uh, a sign saying don't get hit by a truck doesn't work. So it's possible, but think about what it takes to kind of be as good as, as Warby Parker or Sneaking Duck, I'm assuming, is as good because they had to live up, live up to that name. The selfie stick. Uh, to me, this is a design failure. Like, the, the thing that people use the phone for is taking selfies, and yet to kind of compose it well, you have to get a super long arm or an extension of your arm to hold the phone to take a picture back at you. Um, so the selfies are so important. Why wasn't this designed into the product? Um, why isn't the lens allow that? Or what is some other way that the phone could be better for taking selfies? Um, you know, we, people can go a long time in their lives without knowing that you can use the volume up button on an iPhone to actually take the picture. You don't have to put your other hand in front and try to take the, maybe people know that, maybe. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yes, that's. Next slide. <laughs> I think another, uh, another consequence of problem focus is usability testing is the only way we learn about people. We're actually not learning about people, we're learning about our thing. If we can fix a problem, can we test to prove that we fix the problem by having a person succeed? Um, and you know, sometimes we think user research is the same thing as usability testing, um, but again, we're talking about the thing, not the person. Um, and so these are all kind of tied into what I think is this, this, this problem orientation that, that we sort of so easily fall into in the field. All right, the last section I'll talk about is uh, discover. And so this to me is just starting with people. If we seek to understand people and, and, and that leads us to think about new things to make, um, new products, new services, new innovations, those can be revealed by starting with people. I think there's a really shallow version of this which is observe people. Uh, there was a, a story a few years ago about a design award for a snow shovel, and the whole story was they went out and did research, which was looking at people shoveling snow, and they found you know, more women than they thought, and so they ended up changing the ergonomics to suit women to make it a better shovel for women to shovel, which yeah, I think there's a whole other 
subtext of this that we don't need to examine, the, we know. Um, and so this is good, the shovel is better, but it's a really shallow form of research, right? They're just looking at what people do, they don't understand why, their motivations, their emotions, uh, or anything that's more complex about it. And, and so that's kind of like a simple problem. Once you know what the problem is, you know what the solution is. Um, and I feel like that gives kind of the sheen of innovation to, to products that are put out in the world, um, you know, because they went and like looked at somebody and saw who was using their product, and they challenged the most basic assumption of the users, which was just what gender they were. So yes, but so much more. I think, you know, my, my bias, what I advocate for, what I want for us all is to start with people. Understand their lives, understand their context, their values, what brings them meaning, what emotions they have. And that's not just the warm and fuzzy stuff. That's not stuff that I think we should be discarding. It, it absolutely includes also what they do, how they do it, what they're, why they're doing it that way, what tools they use, what other ways they've tried, that whole kind of complete understanding. Uh, and just, you know, a couple of quick examples. Um, right, uh, I've worked with banks. I mean, uh, as many in the room have, as we've learned uh, from Ian. Uh, the bank was going through a merger, they were turning things upside down, and they wondered, well, what's the customer experience like for them as we're going through this merger? And, uh, you know, it's obvious if you sit here, but for them and kind of where they were focused, what we didn't, what they didn't see was this completely different perspective that people were not consumed with the same things that they were. Um, so you get this kind of model of what it's like to work at a bank and what it's like to be a bank customer and what things you care about and don't care about. And you know, a big part of the work I do is letting people present themselves just as broadly as possible to us, and we're listening deeply. We're not checking off a few questions. Um, we're learning what we don't even know that we need to talk about. Um, you know, learning about challenges with health, and school, business, work, family, home, you name it, like what people's lives are about. We didn't ask them, tell us about the merger. Uh, we asked them, tell us about what's going on with you. And then we focused in on what we needed to understand, to, to, to understand them better, and to bring that back to to the bank and help guide them. Here's another example, a big telecommunications company in the United States that has a terrible reputation for customer service, which is kind of all of them, I guess. But, um, and they already know that. It was not like they asked us to uncover that. They wanted to understand, what does it mean to love something? To like love an activity, love a product, love a brand, love an experience. And so we did a bunch of things, and one of them was to go into environments that people went because they had loyalty, that they loved, or some kind of emotional relationship. This is Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco, which is just one of those stores that, that people love. Uh, and we found people with just things that they were super interested in. Uh, someone loved pugs, someone loved Star Wars, someone was a big traveler, um, someone had, uh, you know, loved coffee in a way that people here would understand. Um, and so we met them and we interviewed them about their passions and what it was like and their, also their interactions with business and, and we had them kind of compare and contrast and we ended up with you know, these, these elements that a company could kind of draw from, these principles or design triggers that could create these kind of emotional bonds. But our work wasn't about creating products or services or um, just helping the whole company try to think differently about how they engage with their customers and change their organizational culture. Um, I'm not saying we remade the company, I'm saying we gave them the tools to do that uh, through this kind of effort. So this means we go out, right? We go to the homes, we go to the offices, we go to where people are, we go to their contacts, we ask what they do, we ask them to show us, we get stories, we get long answers where we don't know what the point is necessarily, we want to have them explain everything in their world to us. Uh, they may not have a ready answer as to why they do something, but we have to listen to understand why. We have to ask follow-up questions and probe and infer. 
to try to understand for ourselves why something is the way that it is. And I think the caution is, you know, one reason that organizations sometimes don't talk to customers is because they delude themselves into thinking that their customers are just like them because we all take taxis, we all buy music online, we all share photos, we all order food to be delivered. Um, but, you know, we do those things from a very different perspective uh, from other people. And, you know, customers have less disposable income than we do. They have a different mindset towards trying things, towards dealing with change. Um, they have different technical capabilities than we do. They have different motivations, and they're just different for reasons that we can't necessarily begin to guess at. And people are complicated, and they're interesting, and you owe it yourself to challenge your assumptions about what the world is like out there and, and see what possibilities that can open up for you. You know, notice my stories do not end up with, and then this organization made a thing, and it was a product, and it was great, and made a billion dollars, I actually think those stories are rare if they ever happen. They don't happen for the most part in the work that I do. I think innovation is a process. It's something that's very hard. And you know, my role is to help organizations really think about their opportunity in a fresh way, uh, to deliberately and carefully choose where they want to make a difference in the world, and that harnesses interesting things about people that we've uncovered, that harnesses things about the company that resonates with, with that, um, and that kind of links together both capabilities and aspirations. You know, you may see this starting with people as, as a riskier approach to product development, but I see it as an investment in reducing risk, and, uh, you know, path is always unclear at the outset. So, it, it, you know, even though it may not seem that way, I think even if you've chosen what you're doing, you've just sort of deluded yourself into a certain level of confidence, and acknowledging that you don't know is, um, you know, to me, that's the less risky path. So. I, you know, I encourage you to step back from a problem-solving mindset if that's how you're, uh, how you're wired and just think about opportunities that are rooted in people. Thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Um, we have time for questions, um, and I'm sure we have some. Uh, you just need to give me time to get to you with a microphone or people at the front could ask them and that would be easy. Thank you. Hi. Um, Steve, thanks. Fantastic talk. Um, I am interested, you talked about complex problems and wicked problems and you talked about it being the wrong approach to treat a wicked problem as if it was a complex problem. How do you stop yourself from falling into that trap if you don't know that you actually don't know the problem? Oh, not only the problem unknowable, but the knowledge about whether or not the problem is unknowable may be unknowable. <laughs> That's what you're asking me? That's the first question. <laughs> I mean, if I say I don't know, is that, you know, is that in line with it? I mean, I think that's your, I'll try to give a less smart-ass answer. I mean, I think you are grappling with sort of the notion of unknowability. Um, you know, I, 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 there's so much like smart stuff written about this that uh, I took just like the, the icing off to kind of reference. Um, there's this uh, crazy video, is it the Kinefin uh, framework? Is that, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. There's like this Welsh guy, someone shout out his name. Dave's right. He's got this amazing video where he like walks you through these four quadrants and it's, it's much richer than what I did. The video is awesome because you're like, yep, yep. 
yep, what? He just, <laughs> I mean, it, it's brilliant, and it just, uh, it's almost like a, like a drug-induced experience to kind of watch it, but just to say, like, there's a lot of smart stuff about that, and somebody who's smart, like Dave Snowden, or someone who's written about systems thinking, Cornelius probably can tell you something, because was, that was part of his workshop, I think. So I don't know, but the answer is definitely out there. Even if the answer is it's not knowable, someone is more qualified to say that than I am. So there's my punt on your question. Other questions? Over there, hang on, coming. Hi, um, I just want to know uh, what it excites you most about the future of UX design and its potential in society. And what excites, was the last part in society? Well, <laughs> no, just in general actually. What excites me? Um, what excites me about the future? I don't I mean the present is pretty exciting. Um, but I know, like, I mean your question acknowledges the frame that I think we get pulled into that that the new is kind of the better. Um, like, you know, if you do user research, there's often a discussion about like, what are the new techniques about doing user research? And I resent that question because, you know, at, at fundamental, it's, um, it's, the, it's talking to people and learning from them, and that's a very human activity, and humans have been around for a long time. Uh, I, I don't, it's not a thing I'm looking to change, it's looking, a thing I'm looking to personally develop and help other people develop, but that's kind of a human, level, skill level thing. Um, you know, so the context of UX changes and something, something blockchain, something, something IoT would be like an answer to that question as we sometimes talk about it. But I just, I don't know any of that. I don't care about any of that. Like, we still have phone entry dialogues like the one that I'm talking about. So that means to, the, to me the future of, of UX is like living up to our promise that we kind of made when we said we wanted to do this. And uh, that's not very forward-looking. That's like catching up with the failure of the backwards part. And it's a thing that I would hope that we could do. And I think keep doing the human-to-human -human part and, and, and more of us doing more of that better is, is my sort of future thing. Oh, and uh, also robots, right? <laughs> the nice kind. Nice, not kill all humans, robots, but just nice, friendly robots. Any other? Hang on. I think you forgot AI. Oh, yeah. S uh, such an awesome uh, presentation. Thanks for that. Do you think there's like a one-upmanship out there that comes into play at times? Because you've shown some great examples of, you know, some really dodgy UX. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, there's sort of something gets invented by somebody that's got no background in doing stuff other than, you know, a bit sort of, you know, a little bit out there. Do you think there's a one-upmanship that sort of comes into play at times? I don't know if this is a one-upmanship example. Didn't, some, didn't somebody just release another phone with a notch in it? Like the, you know, the iOS, uh, whatever version it has. Like that, I, my understanding was like, that was a design compromise based on some hardware things. So they like made the screen, part of it wasn't writable. And then who came up with the other one? Samsung? Who? Someone came up with another one that replicated the design failure, I think, as, because that's how you communicate success or design or innovation. And that's almost like one, you know, downmanship. Like, they, they, did, they 
presumably had the opportunity to not replicate what someone else had done, but they chose to do that rather than kind of creating their own thing. That's maybe more, I don't know. That's, that's the example that comes to mind, even though it's the opposite of what you said, which isn't a very kind answer, but. I think they, they even advertised it as less notch. Less notch. We've still got a notch. Our notch is smaller <laughs> by our phone, right. Uh, I think we've got time for another question. Over there, hang on. So um, I'm just wondering, um, how would you justify to business to, to have this process of just um, spending time to deeply understand um, customers or people? How does the business justify not spending time with people? That's my Steve Beatty answer, by the way. <laughs> I mean, so not everything, I mean, there's a bunch of different approaches to take and there's a bunch of different kinds of problems and different contexts and situations. Like I said at the beginning, choose wisely uh, among them. So look at all the things that you're doing and think about when this merits a certain approach. And I think your, um, you know, your proposal should be you know, rooted around outcomes, not process. We want to do this. Like, I don't think you ever get anywhere by saying, we have to talk to our customers. Now, why are you saying that? Talk to your stakeholders and people that control the purse springs and resources uh, about what you want to accomplish and why the things you've done so far don't get you there. We're here, we need this, the way to do it is this other thing. That's, um, that's speaking to people in the language that they speak, not in the language that you speak. Right? I heard a talk about UX research methods and I want to do a something, something, something. No one cares. Right? We are not learning the things that we are learning and we're having these consequences. We need to do such and such kind of approach in order to solve the problems that we as a business are facing. I think the more you can you know, elevate your, your proposals to that language, my hope is uh, you know, you're having a more uh, elevated dialogue and that, you know, again, I would hope that would lead you to the kinds of outcomes you're looking for. Please join me in thanking Steve Porter. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.